Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. Learning Made Easier. This is episode 104, Writing as Construction for the Final Draft. If you haven't listened to episodes 101, 102, and 103, you might want to do that first so you understand some of the terms we'll be using in this episode. Your final draft needs to be three things, clear, concise, and complete. If you're missing any of these, your draft isn't final yet. But what does it mean to be clear, concise, and complete? Well, first, to be clear, you need to ask yourself, what are you trying to say in this paper? Why is it important for you to say it? And why is it important for the reader to read it? And the answers to these questions should never be what my teacher wants to hear so I can get a good grade and so I can get a good grade. Stop focusing on the grade, start focusing on the work, and you'll get a better grade. Your reader wants to see that you can explain your main point. Now, being clear means you get rid of extra words that don't add content. You make sure that your spelling and grammar are correct. You ensure that your paper is organized and logical. And you make every paragraph relate directly to the main point you're trying to get across. Remember, your first goal is to be clear on what you're trying to say and make that clear to your reader. If you're not clear, your reader will have to work to figure out what you're saying, and that means the paper is not doing its job. To be concise, Think of this as the requirement to make it short and sweet. Being concise means that you say exactly what you need to say and no more. It means choosing your words carefully as you put them onto the page so that you are not cluttering up the written landscape with extra words that don't mean anything. Long-windedness, $12 words, and run-on sentences are common issues in staying concise. Being concise does not mean leaving out important information. Many students mistake brief or sparse for concise. Do not make this mistake. Which brings us to the third point. You need to be complete. Being complete means that you have enough data, which in most cases will be references and citations, to back up and support every claim and every argument that you've made in your paper. It means you've covered each of the main points well enough that your reader will understand why you included them in the paper and how they tie to the overall story that you're telling. Essentially, being complete means you didn't leave stuff out or leave your reader guessing at what you're trying to say. So, how do we achieve clear, concise, and complete? Because that's what turns a paper into a final draft. Let's dig into some things you can look for in order to avoid turning in a paper that looks like a first draft. One of the ways teachers know you're turning in a first draft is if your writing is sloppy. It's a dead giveaway you didn't reread what you turned in, that you wrote it in a rush, probably the night or morning before it was due. It's not hard to spot, but if you're doing your work at the last minute, it's almost inevitable, and that will bring your grade down in a hurry. So how do you find and correct for sloppiness? Here are some tried and true methods to catch it and stop it in its tracks. The first step is proofread. The first and best defense against sloppy work is proofreading. Proofreading is not just run your spell checker and hope it catches all the problems. And in fact, there are some really good reasons to avoid using a spell checker, but we'll get to that later. Proofreading means that you are going to check, you are going to check for spelling errors, 
grammar problems, punctuation mistakes, random spacing errors, misused words, and slang. It also means you need to check for awkward writing, overwriting, organization problems, overpersonalization, and a lot of other issues that we'll cover in this section. Pro tip, wait to proofread until at least 72 hours after you've stopped writing your draft. Your eyes need time to refresh so you can see mistakes. Before that, you're too close to them to see them because you've looked at this draft several times. It will be too familiar for you to effectively proofread before that. Number two, read it out loud. One of the best ways to find awkward constructions in your own writing is to read the paper out loud. You will spot run-on sentences when you realize you haven't taken a breath in a page and a half. Fragments and strangely constructed sentences will show up much more easily when you hear them. Subject-verb agreement, things like, children often runs to the playground. Person shift problems. He told her several things. I thought about what I had told her. Were the speakers the same person in both times? And tense shift problems. He looked at her and says he will do that. Often show up in this kind of exercise as well. The third method is to get an editor. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean a paid editor, but find someone you trust who knows how to read and write and ask them to go over your paper. Other students can often spot problems like the ones listed here if they're given guidelines for what to look for, which is why one of the exercises we recommend is to have a classmate read and edit your first draft. Number four, outline the draft. Outline your first draft after you've written out everything you know about your topic. This can be more helpful than you'll ever believe. Don't outline first. That can block some of your best inspired ideas that come in the heat of writing the first draft. But once you've dumped out all your knowledge on the topic into your first draft, an outline can be really helpful in moving the ideas into some kind of order for a second draft. When you outline your first draft, Make a note in the outline of the main point of each paragraph. You'll find that paragraphs three, seven, and eight are talking about one of your main points, and paragraphs four, five, and nine are talking about another. This enables you to easily rearrange them for the second draft. Now I hear you saying, aren't there any tools that can help me with this? Do I have to like know everything on my own to do all this? No, there are online proofreading tools. And when you're polishing, Proofreading will be a major part of what you need to do. And proofreading does not mean running your spell checker. We actually have several good reasons not to trust spell checkers. But for problems like the ones we've just talked about, the bare bones mechanics of writing, you can take your work to HemingwayApp.com and paste it in a paragraph at a time. You can also use the Google Docs add-on SAS Writing Revisor, which will go through your Google Doc and find problems. And both of these will point out issues like hard to read sentences, overwriting, run-ons, split infinitives, word substitution problems, and many other issues that are often seen in undergrad writing. So we'll link to these in the show notes. However, it also helps to know what you're looking for when you use tools like these. Just being shown that they're there isn't enough if you don't know how to correct what you're looking at. So here are some things that you should look for when you proofread and how to correct them when you see them. So we'll start with mechanical issues. And mechanical issues are just sort of how you write, like what the writing looks like. And some of the mechanical issues that we see a lot in undergrad writing are problems with plurals versus apostrophes, issues with quotation marks, and issues with capitalization. So when it comes to plurals versus apostrophes, 
Be careful about adding apostrophe s to the end of a word. A lot of folks think that this means I'm making this a plural. Book is one book, and so book apostrophe s must be more than one book. No, just add the s. This construction, apostrophe s, it doesn't indicate plurals. It indicates possession or ownership or occasionally a contraction from is, where you're shortening the word is and pushing it together. So, you know, John apostrophe s going to the store. Well, that means John is going to the store. But if you say John apostrophe s book, that's John's book. You're indicating possession. A special case of apostrophe s is it apostrophe s and its. ITS. They're not the same word. And in this one case only, the one without the apostrophe is the possessive form of it. While it apostrophe s means it is. So be careful about apostrophes when you're looking at plurals. You shouldn't be using them for the most part. Quotation marks. Do not use quotation marks for emphasis. Use quotation marks to frame the actual word someone else said or when you're defining a term. When you use quotation marks to emphasize, you're saying that the item in the quotes implies the opposite. For example, the quote-unquote fresh chicken means it's anything but fresh. It's an indicator of sarcasm, and you don't want to be sarcastic in a formal paper. And then capitalization issues. We are not in the 17th century. They liked their random capitalizations back then. But if you're not sure something should be capitalized, check to see if it's a proper noun or the first word of a sentence, or someone's name. But if you're still not sure, check with your instructor. For example, in science writing, it is rare for the names of theories to be capitalized. If it wasn't capitalized in your textbook, don't capitalize it in your paper. Now, the next thing is something that is kind of hard to get across in a podcast. So we are going to put these charts that we've got, because this is from a writer's workshop that I give, about spelling issues. And there are three main kinds of spelling issues. The first one is sound-alike words, the second one is commonly confused words, and the third one is write-like-you-talk spelling errors. And so we've got charts on these, and what we're going to do is put these up as downloads on the uh, podcast page, and so you can download these there. But we're just going to grab a couple of examples for each of us that kind of jump out at us. So for me, two pairs of sound-alike words that just drive me crazy when students don't spell them correctly. Accept with an A and accept with an EX. Now, here's how you tell the difference. Accept is a verb. It means to receive or to take. I accept this. Accept with an EX means to leave out or exclude. So think exclude, accept. All right, EX, C-E-P-T. I want all of them except that one. You're gonna use EX, why? Because you're excluding that one. So remember X and X go together. And then accept, is the other one. It's the verb. The other thing that bugs me is defiantly and definitely. I know that this must be um, an autocorrect mistake, but when you say, I will defiantly do that, you're saying you're going to do it being boldly disobedient. If you say definitely, it's without doubt. It's guaranteed. You're going to do it. Make sure that you don't have an A in it when you mean definitely. Okay, when you're saying definitely that you are guaranteeing you're going to do this, there should be no A in the word that you've written. If there is an A, you've got the wrong word. For me, when students confuse there, there, and there, meaning there, T-H-E-R-E, showing a location, there, T-H-E-I-R, meaning 
something belongs to someone else or they're the contraction for they are, it drives me nuts because I will read it literally as it's written. And when it doesn't make sense, it takes me a second to realize, oh, they meant a different form of there to change it so that it makes sense. Can I give you a hint for that that I actually just came up with in a class like a couple semesters ago? Absolutely. If you're saying there, T-H-E-R-E, it has here in it, H-E-R-E, so it's a location. Mm. If you're saying there, T-H-E-I-R, the possessive one, it has an air in it, H-E-I-R, so it's a possessive. And then they apostrophe R-E is the other one. It's the funky one. It's the weird one because it's got an apostrophe in it. I like that. So you have a place, a possessive, and the other one. And then uh, the other one that I see a lot of, and I get a lot of defiantly and definitely like Adam, but two, two, and two. So two, T-O-O, meaning uh, a surplus and abundance, there's too much. Or also, there's two as in the number after one, T-W-O. And then there's two, T-O. And I'll get students mixing the three up. Uh, and that does throw my understanding off. Obviously, I can figure out, you know, after a quick reread what they meant, but it's frustrating when that has to be done over and over. And when the paper or when the person grading your paper has to keep rereading to figure out what you meant, that means you're not getting your point across very clearly. Mm -hmm. And some students ask, well, it's just a, it's just a typo. You know, why is it such a big deal? Well, because the moment it throws me out of what you're saying, the moment it throws Denor out of what you're saying, that's a weakness in the writing. All right. Your goal is to keep your reader's attention. And if you're throwing their attention away anywhere, this can do it. It's like tripping over a rock in the road that you didn't expect was there. You don't want your reader to trip over mistakes you've made. You want to remove the mistakes so that they don't have anything to trip over. Now, the second spelling issue is commonly confused words, and there's only a few of them here, but I keep collecting them. If you know of a couple of words that are not sound alike, but they get confused with each other, send them on to me at adam at undergradeasier.com. One that a lot of my students get mixed up on is economic versus economical. They sound similar, but they're not the same. When we say economic, it's something that has to do with money or the economy. But if you say economical, then it's thrifty or pennywise or careful about money or not wasteful. So if something is economical, it means it's going to save money somewhere. But economic is a more general term. It's this is an economic problem, not this is an economical problem. Now, the third kind of spelling problem is writing like you talk. And this is where we get into what um, one amazing writer who wrote the um, Anguish English books, Richard Letterer, he's an English teacher, calls American Slurvian. All right, and I'll give you an example of American Slurvian, and then we'll talk about a few examples from writing. If you wrote like you talk, you might write something like, G-Jet? No, Jew? Sweet. And in American Slurvian, what I just said was, did you eat yet? No, did you? Let's go eat. But when we're talking fast, we just interpret those as those words, even though that's not what we said. Jeet is definitely not, did you eat yet? But our ears and our mind interpret it as that. The problem is that sometimes we then bring these ways of speaking into how we write. And then we end up with combinations like, but naked, instead of buck naked. The actual correct way of saying it is buck naked, B-U-C-K. And it means to be completely without clothing. 
Another one I've seen recently is Deep Seated, S-E-E-D-E-D. No, it's Deep Seated. And Deep Seated means unlikely to change. It's fundamental. Now, of course, the problem with that is it also means entrenched and dug in. And if you're thinking of seed being planted, so it is not a seed. It is a seat. You are sitting down and you are refusing to move. This is a deep seated issue. Another one that I know bugs Denore when I brought it up for today was for all intensive purposes. No, it is for all intents and purposes. And when you say it fast, it sounds like for all intents and purposes but it's still for all intents and purposes. And what that means is in every practical sense. And for me, finally, another one that really bugs me is when they're using a Latin term and they don't realize it's a Latin term. And so instead of writing per se, P-E-R space S-E, they'll write per se, P-E-R space S-A-Y, because that's what it sounds like, but it's Latin. And so we're borrowing this from Latin and per se, P-E-R space S-E, means intrinsically. It means of themselves. It means it's just something that's part of that thing. And it's so much a part of that thing that you can't separate it. Oh, man, the ones that jump out to me are should of or would of or could of where students write OF, because should of, would have and could of are contractions for should have, would have, could have. So it's an apostrophe VE. But because we hear it as of, as OF, and that's the sound we've interpreted it, I get a lot of papers that say should OF, and I don't know what it means until I realize, oh, that meant should have or should have, and this is how it came out. And again, this is one of those, I get why the mistakes are made. I'm certainly, I've certainly made those mistakes myself. I'm sure Adam has, but this is also why we revise. This is why we spend time because we are trying to communicate when we write and if our communication is throwing something off and for our readers that's a problem it means that we're not making our point as effectively as we could be now for all three of these things we just talked about sound alike words commonly confused words and write like you talk spelling errors if you know you make some of these like if you know you are a habitual should of person make a note of that make a list of things i know i have problems with and once you've put your first draft together and changed it into a second draft by outlining and moving things around and everything, then search for the word of. And anywhere you find it, make sure that it shouldn't be have. Make sure that if you wrote could of, you change it to could have. Don't use the contraction. Change it to could have or would have or should have. If you know that you constantly write defiantly instead of definitely, put defiantly on your list of these are words I know I screw up. Search for defiantly. Did you mean definitely? Fix the spelling. This is part of proofreading. Now that just took us through mechanical and spelling issues. And now we've got to talk about grammar. Let's talk about run-on sentences, because that's a problem I get in a lot of drafts. If you get a paragraph or a page full of commas, semicolons, and dashes, but very few periods, very few question marks or exclamation points, you probably have a run-on sentence. And the way to correct it is by breaking up your giant run-on sentence or paragraph into smaller sentences. It's better to have five simple sentences than one giant, long, complicated one. Another issue is sentence fragments, which is sort of the opposite of run-on sentences. Run-on sentences are too big. Sentence fragments are missing something. 
check and make sure that every string of words that start with a capital letter and end with a period, exclamation point, or question mark, at minimum, have a subject and a verb. If they're missing a verb, they're not a full sentence. If they're missing a subject, they're not a full sentence. Make sure you have at least a subject and a verb in every string that starts with a capital and ends with a period or some other sentence ending mark. Abbreviations. Do not use etc. and or or through THRU in a paper. Please, unless you are quoting someone directly from a text conversation, do not use anything that looks like text speak. So don't use LOL or LMAO or JK in a formal paper because that's fine when you're communicating, when you're trying to get something across really quickly. But in a formal paper, you're communicating in a different way and in a more formal way. Generally, don't use abbreviations unless you're talking about titles or acronyms. You spell acronyms the first time you use them. So for example, Dr. John Marquez of the Centers for Disease Control and parentheses CDC found that. So the acronym is fine for doctor because it's the title. And then after you've explained that CDC is the Centers for Disease Control, you can use CDC throughout the paper. Now, here's another one that both of us are going to kind of get in on is using incorrect words, also known as the unhelpful spell checker. If you are not reasonably sure of the spelling of a word, do not trust the spell checker to know what that word is. Spell checking software is not actually checking your spelling. If it was, it would be checking the context of the sentence to figure out which word you meant. It's just a typo checker. It assumes that you made a typo because this is not a correctly spelled word. It also assumes that you know how to actually spell that word. And it assumes when you're shown that you typed it incorrectly and it gives you a list of possible words, you can pick the right one. And this can lead to some really funny and really embarrassing errors if you trust your spell checking software. For example, I had a student who wrote a 12 page paper and they accepted the spell checkers first fix for what they thought they had written or they thought they had written organism. They wrote O-R-G-I-S-M. Given that spelling, I will leave it to your imagination what word it changed it to. It was not an appropriate word for a paper unless you were talking about human sexuality, which they weren't. And you would be amazed what that misspelled word gets up to in a social environment. I laughed so hard that I was very glad I had gone to the bathroom before that grading session. Let's just put it that way. I had another student who had uh, they were a criminology student and they wrote criminals have been commended for their actions all throughout history they meant condemned but they chose the wrong word from the spell checker and that one was after i had told students don't trust your spell checker i had a student try to write about intersectionality and wrote about intersexuality and it really confused me for about three pages until i realized what they were trying to write about and i told them I think you mean this concept, but you might want to rewrite this to make sure because you're writing a paper that I'm not sure answers anything I'm asking you to. Mm -hmm. I had another student who was a geology student and their paper referred to indigenous people as igneous and sedentary people as sedimentary through the entire paper. And the way that he figured out that he had written it incorrectly was when he wrote that igneous and sedimentary people do not interact. And in the, in the margin I wrote, well, then what about the metamorphic people? And he came to me with that paper. I was, again, this was when I was in graduate school. And he came to me, it was white as a sheet. And he said, I don't understand how I still can't see the mistakes. And I said, you're a geology student, aren't you? He's all, how did you know? And I'm all, because 
those words just look so normal to you that you can't it's hard for you to shift your mind to see them to see the proper words but you need to be very careful about those two words in any class that's not geology from here on out promise me and then I just recently had a student produce this very startling statement that the patriarchy is when women are exploded by men. They meant exploited, but they trusted their spell checker. So don't make these mistakes, folks. I mean, granted, you'll make your teacher laugh, but you really don't want them to. So use a dictionary to find out how the word is spelled so that you know this definition goes with that spelling. Okay, now I've got the right word. And I refer you back to defiantly. Then we get to using words incorrectly. So... Unlike using the wrong word, this is simply using a word that would be right if it were in the right form or if it were used in the right way. So we've got some examples for you. Suppose means a person is currently in the act of supposing. Supposed to is the correct form when you're saying someone ought to do something or should do something. They are supposed to go to the store. But when we're saying it again, this is sort of a Slurvian word too, right? We say supposed to. We don't hear the D in supposed to. We just run it together with the T. But when you're writing it, it needs to be supposed to with a D on the end. Don't use nouns as descriptive words. Bias is a noun. A person cannot be biased. They can only be biased. And this is, to some extent, a dialect issue. There are dialects of English that just use bias as the descriptive word. But in formal English, in formal written English, biased with an ED on the end is the appropriate way to say a person is biased. They cannot just be biased. Another one that Adam and I get a lot is when you have a preposition that must go with a word for the word to make sense. And we have students leaving it out. So the one we get a lot is discriminate. So if you're talking about discrimination, then there has to be discrimination against someone or between two parties for that to make more sense. He discriminated her doesn't make sense. He discriminated against her makes sense. And again, this is a dialect issue, and we know that in some dialects, he discriminated her makes perfect sense, but not in written English. When you are writing a paper, it's got to be in written English. You can't write it in non-written English. Written English is actually its own dialect in some ways. Now, here's another mistake I see a lot of people making, not just students, because English is weird, because English is not a language. English is a stalker. It follows other languages down dark alleys, it hits them over the head, and then it goes through their pockets for loose grammar, syntax, and vocabulary. Which means that sometimes we follow a rule the way it's done in Swedish, and sometimes we follow a rule the way it's done in French, and sometimes we follow the rule the way it's done in Swahili, because we've borrowed words from all of those languages into English. And so we get this issue of mass nouns versus count nouns. So a mass noun is one where you cannot count the individual pieces of the noun. It's also a noun that doesn't have a plural form because it's always plural. A count noun is one where you can count the individual pieces of it, and it can have a plural form. So there's another chart, but I'm just going to describe it to you to determine which words you should use to modify those two kinds of nouns. If it's a mass noun, you use amount and quantity. If it's a count noun, you use number. If it's a mass noun, you use less. If it's a count noun, you use fewer. And if it's a mass noun, you can use much, much more, a lot, or a lot of. But if it's a count noun, you just use many. So some examples are many grains, but a lot of sand. Less money, but fewer dollars. And an amount of crime, but a number of crimes. 
Why a number of crimes? Because we can count them. But we can't count crime by itself. We can't count the crime. It's not countable. So it's an amount of crime. Many times students replace of, in, or for with on. Check to see whether you mean in, for, or of before you finish a sentence using on. And a few examples of this include, we need to look at how writing is used on American newspapers. In this case, on should be in. The issue on student plagiarizing is an important one. On should be of. The fallout of these policies on undocumented students is difficult to address. On should be for. Now who versus whom? Students confuse these all the time. I had one student who truly believed that whom was the formal version of who. And so their entire paper was whom did this and whom did that and whom thought that and whom did. No. Here's a simple way to know which one you're supposed to use. If you can replace who and whom with he, she, or they, and it makes sense, then use who. If you can replace it with him, her, or them, and it makes sense, then use whom. The research, this research, my research, or their research, but never a research and never the researches. This is because in English, the word research can be a noun, always plural, a verb, or an adjective, and it needs to be treated as a different kind of word depending on how it's used. So as a noun, his research on the topic was interesting. Verb, he researched the topic. And adjective, he presented a research paper on the topic. And notice that when it's used as an adjective, some students say, well, it's a research, right? No, it's a paper. What kind of paper? A research paper. That's because it's an adjective. But it is never a research, and it is never the researches. And this is another thing that a lot of my students have trouble not doing, because they're so used to saying, I'm going to do a research. No, you're going to do a research paper. Not the same thing. All right. Fluff and filler. This is a big big problem for a lot of students. Academic writing is to the point, and that means that the more extra words you have, the harder it is to get to your point. Even if you're not falling victim to the $12 word problem, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, you can fall victim to fluff and filler. We all do it. Many issues of fluff and filler just boil down to wordiness and redundancy, as in these examples. So we'll trade off here. We've got one, a considerable amount of. No, the paper had a considerable amount of wordiness. Or we could just say the paper was too wordy. In a position to. Use can or may. He is in a position to approve the contract versus he can approve the contract. Here's one I love. On account of the fact that. No, because or due to. D-U-E space T-O. Almost any word ending in L-Y can be removed, especially in science writing. Mm -hmm. And on the same note, don't use very or really. These words are almost always filler. You can remove them. Another indicator of fluff and filler is when you see phrases like of which, of this, or of the. So find these and remove them where possible. The book of which we are speaking, you can change to the book we are discussing. The problems of the Black community become the Black community's problems. The person who is the author of the book can be changed to the book's author. 
the problems of the student become the student's problems. The actions of juveniles become juveniles' actions. Now, one of the most common fluff and filler words, interestingly enough, is the word that. <laughs> and you can probably eliminate at least half of the that's in your paper. It's one of my known words. I have it on my list of, okay, when you're done writing this, search for the word that and then remove. Just nuke them. Nuke them. You don't need them. It is also definitely one of mine. Uh, I know that when I write my first drafts, I tend to throw in that's for days. Uh, you may have other fingerprint word or fingerprint phrases. Words or phrases you love to use and don't realize you're overusing. Ask your reviewer to check for words or phrases you repeat a lot. Search your paper for them and reword or remove them when you can. And this includes things like saying obviously or clearly. Right? We just said to remove words that end in L-Y, but what's obvious or really clear to you, you don't know that is going to be very obvious or clear to your reader, so you don't get to make that assertion for them. I removed about three pages of my dissertation's length by searching for and removing two fingerprint words that I love, however and obviously. And when I got rid of them, my, my dissertation was three pages shorter. Now, it was a 220-page book, but still, three full pages of nothing but obviously and however. Okay, that was fluff and filler, and they are also words I love. So now I allow myself one per chapter or one per article. I can have I can have one however. I can have one obviously if I really, really want it, and I really think it's obvious, and I can really check with nine other people and say, is this obvious? Okay, great. By that point, there's really no point in using obvious, right? Just get rid of it. And the thing about the that's, that when you have that and that and that and that and that everywhere in your paper, it marks you as very tediously academic. I wrote a fiction novel and I sent it to the editor and she sent it back and said, okay, well, I've already been able to remove 196 that's. It was a 60,000 word novel. It was a short novel. And she removed, you know, a lot of the word that because it was just in there. And it was just like, hi, academic fingerprint, get rid of this. Now, why do fluff and filler happen? Well, one of the biggest reasons for fluff and filler is word count requirements or page count requirements. I have students stressing out all the time over meeting a word count or a page count. So let's address that. Word count, page count, and source count, those are professor shorthand for how much writing you're going to need to do in order to meet the goals of the assignment. The professor has given this assignment to many students before you. They know how much you're going to need to write to do the analysis or explain the outcomes. They've seen hundreds of papers that are doing the same thing you're doing. But because you don't realize it's shorthand, and frankly, neither do they, you as a student assume they say 1,500 words. If I only have 1,499, I'm going to get a bad grade because you think you're going to be graded on the word count, not on the content. I promise you this, you will never, ever, ever be graded down on having 1,499 words when the word count requirement was 1,500, I promise you. Here's how to break this mindset. Think about word count or page count as a limitation rather than a goal. You're only allowed to write 1,500 words or eight pages. You must fit everything you need to say into those 1,500 words or eight pages. I tell one of my classes, the maximum length on your paper can be five pages. I do not want you going over, and that's because I expect them to be able to show me their research and show me their thought process in probably between four and five pages. And I'm trying to get them into the habit of writing shorter papers and more concisely. When you look at a word count or at a page count as a limitation, 
it becomes obvious why you need to ditch the fluff and filler. It's taking up space. You need to say things you want to say and to convince your reader. Now, passive voice is another issue. And it's one of the most pretentious and over academic forms of writing there is. It turns the actor into the object of the verb rather than the subject of the verb. And it's very clunky and it's very pretentious. And a lot of people think it sounds classy and you need to get rid of it. The first hint you might be using passive voice is if you catch yourself starting sentences with there is, there was, or it is. There is controversy about the loophole that was closed by this ruling. Okay, we could just say this ruling closes the controversial loophole. Notice that's active voice. What the ruling is doing something now, okay? Instead of something is being done to it. There is a protest about the closure of the gay bars by police. We could rephrase that as the police closed the gay bars, which led to a protest. And also look at that first sentence. It is not really clear. Are the police doing the protesting or are they one, the ones who closed the gay bars? Which is it? We're not sure because of passive voice. But when we change it to the police doing something, now it becomes very clear who did what. And then the protest obviously was not the police protesting. It was someone else. And often passive voice, I think, comes across as a lack of confidence. You're afraid of making your claim. This is a paper for a class. It's no more, no less. Own your words. Just as much as you want to own that grade, own your words. Make your claims. Back them up with evidence. Don't be shy with your papers. You get to make any argument you want as long as you're following your professor's instructions. Use the sources that are available to you and that you need to use, but say what you want to say on the topic that you're writing about. And another way to spot passive voice, and I really like this trick, is when your sentence has the phrase was verb by noun in it, almost always the noun in the phrase is the actual actor. The paper was written by the student. Who's the actor here, the paper or the student? Papers don't write themselves, so the student needs to be the one you're talking about. So instead of that, say the student wrote the paper. Also, look for the form the X verbed Y by Z. The by Z is a big tip off that you're using passive voice. The ability to appropriately address drug dealer behavior is continually blocked for police officers by the courts. Okay, we have passive voice here, but we could say the courts, who are the actual actor, continually block police officers' ability to address drug dealer behavior. Notice how much clearer that is and how much simpler that is. Oh, and it's also about six words shorter, which means you're saving words for the small space that you have to write what you need to say. Check for zombies. A good way to check for passive voice is to see if you can insert by zombies after the verb. If the sentence still makes sense when you do, then the sentence is in passive voice. I was taught that passive voice is appropriate. You can read that as, I was taught by zombies that passive voice is appropriate. You have passive voice because adding by zombies makes sense. My English teacher taught me that passive voice is appropriate if you try to change it to, my English teacher taught by zombies me that passive voice is appropriate. This is active voice because adding by zombies doesn't make any sense. The only time passive voice is appropriate is when you're referring to data and avoiding personalization. The data were analyzed using SPSS 18 for Windows. Now, 
there's also these issues of slang and jargon. I'll take slang and Denor will take jargon. So academic writing is formal. And that means phrases you would normally use in speech may not be appropriate in writing. So slang changes over time. It's changing as we speak. So we're not going to try to go into detail about what specific slang is incorrect at any given time. However, if you don't think you'd find that word or that phrase that you wrote in a textbook, it might be slang. So find a different way to word it. And building off that, jargon is professional slang. Words like paradigm and impact and synergy may seem like regular words, but when they're the new trendy way to say model or perspective and effect, they're probably jargon. This is similar to using a $12 word. Figure out if you can say what you need to say with less jargon, and if you can, please, please do that. Now, when it comes to organization, a lot of students get dinged for organization, that their paper's not organized, and they say, well, what does that mean? Well, here are some issues with organization. So first, the undefined audience. If you don't know to whom you're writing, you won't know how to convince them with what you're saying. So always identify your audience. And then I get students asking, well, how will you know what my audience is, Dr. Sanford? Okay, well, the way you identify to a non-audience reader like your teacher, who you're talking to is to say, police officers often have to face issue, or many nurses find their job is hampered by problem. Okay, now I, the reader, know that this paper is aimed mainly at cops, or it's aimed mainly at nurses. There's more than one idea per paragraph. Check to make sure you're only covering one main idea in each paragraph you write. Don't hop all over the place trying to cover three topics in the space of nine sentences. It does not work. That doesn't mean you can't have supporting ideas in the same paragraph as the main idea, but don't have two or three main ideas in one paragraph. Main ideas are like beta fish. They do just fine if they're in their own space. If they have to share the space, Things get messy really quickly. Another organization issue is the missing main point. A paper that doesn't have a story to tell is a paper that's going to bore the reader to tears. So make sure you have a story, the main point of your paper, to which each of your paragraphs are related in some way, and that it shows through to your reader. Again, having someone else read your paper is going to help you find this problem really quickly. They're going to say, hey, paragraph four doesn't seem to have anything to do with what you're saying about police brutality. It's just about, you know, this one person who doesn't like the police, but it's not about brutality. Oh, okay, I need to fix that. Missing argument or missing conclusion. This is the so what factor. Without an argument, the reader has no reason to read your paper. Without a conclusion, here's how it all goes together, the reader is going to feel cheated. Make sure you've included both in your paper. Another organization issue is poor connections or missing transitions. Make sure that each paragraph ties to the one before it and the one after it. Make your path from one signpost to the next very clear for your reader. Don't assume the reader is just going to see it naturally. And this is yet another area in which having someone else pre-read your draft is going to help you enormously. Because often this is just something we don't notice because we know how they go together and we don't realize we didn't articulate that for the reader. There's lack of focus. If you're doing a lot of throat clearing at the beginning of a paper, it means you're not focused. And throat clearing is when you use phrases like, since the dawn of time, human beings have, or throughout history, we have never, or some other long-winded, meaningless phrase. It annoys the hell out of me when I get them on papers, and I will always ask students to cite it. It's the overuse of however, 
therefore, or furthermore, or thus, or hence, uh, in the main body of the paper. What this tells the reader is, I'm not sure what I'm saying, so I'm going to put a bunch of fancy words in here and hope you don't notice that I really haven't said anything meaningful in two paragraphs. And when I read that sentence to my students, I actually insert a bunch of coughing, like, <clears throat> I'm not <clears throat> sure what I'm saying, <clears throat> so <clears throat> I'm going to, <clears throat> and just keep on coughing all through it. You're clearing your throat, and you're trying to distract from the fact that I don't have anything meaningful here. You don't need to preface your work with windy nonsense, and that's a really polite phrase, phrases to ease the reader in. Just state the problem you're writing about, give a brief explanation of why it's important, state your argument, and go from there. Get to the main point quickly. One of the things I tell my students is the quicker you make your point, the quicker I award you your points. So the more you're, the more time you spend giving me fuller, the less time I'm going to have to give you points. Lack of focus also shows up when you aren't clear on what your overall story is, when you don't know what your main point is. Check each paragraph and see if you could state how this ties to the argument you're making, to your overall story. And if you can't, then that paragraph doesn't belong in that paper. You may have too many ideas. This is what's called the scope condition problem. It's like when you open up a page in Wikipedia on Volkswagen engines, and 10 minutes later after enthusiastic clicking, you have 19 tabs open in your browser on random things such as avocado recipes, books about women in the 19th century, Bigfoot, the latest presidential election, nutrition information on that meal you had the other day, types of wordplay, and you think they all need to be part of your paper. This is the point at which you need to open this second document, type out all the interesting but irrelevant info into it, and save it for another paper, or three papers, or six papers, but separate them a little bit. So another thing that we often see is issues with citation, and we know. You all stress about citations. Your high school English teachers, your English comp teachers, they have scarred you on this. We understand. But here's some things that you do need to know about citation issues. The first one is unintentional plagiarism. Not only is this poor writing, it can get you in a lot of trouble. One way to deal with unintentional plagiarism is to use duplichecker.com. If you see phrases in your writing or similar ideas to what you said phrased differently, duplicated in work that duplichecker finds, it's a good idea to look at that work and see if it's something you should be citing. You probably should. Remember, plagiarizing is like running a red light. It doesn't matter if you meant to do it, the penalty still applies. Another thing about citation is just citation style errors. So make sure you know your citation styles requirements for in-text and reference page citing. If you don't know how to cite, it is time for you to learn. Get a copy of the style sheet. It's often available online. Just go to Google and type Chicago style style sheet or ASA style sheet or APA style sheet. And then take the time to get familiar with how citations are formatted both in the text and in the Works Cited page. If you can afford it, a reference management program like EndNote will help enormously. If you're planning on going to grad school, law school, or med school, I personally do recommend EndNote because it saved my bacon more times than I can count. Remember that every Works Cited citation contains the same major components. For a journal, you're going to need to find out the names of the author or authors, the year of the publication, the title of the article, the title of the journal, volume and issue information on the journal, and the page numbers of the article. For a book, you'll need to know the author or authors, the year of publication, the page numbers of your citation, the title of the book, the publisher of the book, and the location of the publisher. 
And for a book chapter, you'll need to know the names of the author or authors, the year of publication, the chapter number, the page numbers, the title of the book, the title of the chapter, the publisher of the book, the location of the book, and if it's an edited volume, the names of the editor or the editors. So the only issue once you've got this information is find out how the citation style formats and organizes those components and then format and organize them the same way. For example, do you use the author's full name or just the first initial? Do you put them first name, last name, or are they all last name, first name? Are some of them one and some of them the other? Do you put the year in parentheses? Do you put a period after it? Does it go at the end of the, of the citation? Does it go in the middle of the citation? Just look at the pattern, figure out the pattern. And once you have the pattern, you can just slot in all that information and it'll be, it'll be correct 90% of the time. Look at formatting. For example, in ASA style, um, the journal articles uh, or the journal names are always in italics and titles of articles and titles of journals are always in title case. They always have a capital letter at the beginning of every important word. In the same way, every inline or in-text citation has the same major components, the author or author's last name, <clears throat> the year of publication, and the page numbers. And again, your only issue is to look at the pattern. How does the citation style format and organize those components? Then format and organize them in the same way. It's not as hard as you think. It's actually just tedious. Long quotes and paraphrases. Ditch the long quotes. Always, always paraphrase if you can. If you can't, don't quote more than 15 words from the original source. The only time you should ever use a long quote is if there's absolutely no way you can say it better, shorter, or more clearly than the author said it, or if you're using it as an example of someone else's writing to critique it or otherwise interact with it. Normally a thing you do in literature and non-research papers. There's also the issue of the quote sandwich. Be really careful about this pattern. You wrote one sentence, long quote of four or five lines, one more sentence you wrote. These are quote sandwiches, and they just demonstrate you are not doing the writing. You are letting the quote do all the heavy lifting. This rarely works. Don't do it. You've got to show that you understand the quote, and you've got to be able to say something about it beyond what the quote is saying. So avoid the quote sandwich. What do you want your reader to get out of that quote? Why did that quote jump out at you? What do you want your reader to see from it? How is it related to what you're trying to say? I have students all the time when they do their annotated bibs, they'll give me a quote and it's a really juicy quote and it has nothing to do with the point they're making. And I ask them, how does this relate to what you're saying? And they said, well, I just thought it sounded good. Okay, that's not good enough. In text citation mistakes, when you're citing in the text, cite only with the author's name and the date or page in whatever way your citation style calls for. Do not write things like, in a 2006 article titled, blah, blah, diddy, blah. The author's name, name, and name said, just get rid of that entirely. It adds false length to the paper and takes up space you could be using for support, insights, and better writing. Give the author's last name and year in an in-text citation. So name, 2006. Make the name of the article available to the reader on the works cited page. Name, name, and name, 2006, blah, 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 Journal of Weir Writing, Volume 1, Issue 2. Also, keep your citations to one per idea. Every time you use a new idea from a writer, cite the idea. So if you have three ideas from the same writer in the same paragraph, you will have three citations. We've got an example paragraph here. Evolution is the concept that genetic variation is introduced into species populations over time. Darwin, 1859. The process by which this occurs is called natural selection. Darwin, 1859. 
when pressures applied to surviving breeding organisms by outside forces that influence their genotype survival under those conditions increase the chance they will breed and propagate their species as long as those conditions hold. Darwin, 1859. There are three different ideas from Darwin in this paragraph. You need to cite each one, because if you just stuck Darwin, 1859 at the end, I don't know which of those is his ideas and which of those is your stuff. You've got to make sure that the reader knows these things came from Darwin. They're not original to me. Jones citing Smith. Sometimes you'll read something in an article or book by Jones that looks like this. According to Smith, 2002, discrimination in the barrio goes far beyond individualized racism. Given that Jones is citing Smith, you might think it's okay to do one of these two things when you cite that idea. One, just quote Jones as the author of the idea and leave Smith out of it entirely. Or two, just quote Smith as the author of the idea while putting Jones in your work's cited page. Neither of these is correct, and both are plagiarism. The first one is plagiarism because you're using Smith's idea without giving Smith credit. The second one is plagiarism because you're essentially stealing Jones's work when they found Smith's ideas for you. Instead, you should go to Jones' work cited page, find Smith's citation, get a copy of Smith's article, read what Smith said, put Smith's work in your work cited page, and cite Smith directly. What if you can't get a copy of Smith's article? In that case, put the Smith citation and the Jones citation in your work cited page and write it like this. Jones, 2012, citing Smith, 2002, states that individualized racism is not the only discrimination in the barrio. In this way, you've given Jones credit for finding it while giving Smith credit for the idea. Put both of them in the work cited so readers can find the citations and made it clear you found Smith's idea in Jones' citation. Another issue in this area is claims made with no evidence. If you make a claim about something but you have no evidence, you're not writing a research paper. You're writing an opinion piece. Now, that may occasionally be the goal, but when you are writing an essay for most classes or a research paper, you got to back up what you say with facts and citations. So this is also a place where bad citation writing rears its ugly head because you don't know how to do it. We've already talked about that. Make sure that you do that correctly. Conclusions that don't fit the evidence. Make sure anytime you say this shows or this means that the evidence you're using actually supports the conclusion you're making. Make sure you know what the author actually meant by that quote before you cite his or her words or ideas in support of your argument. Make sure the quote you wrote down isn't the author preparing to refute someone else's ideas. For example, um, I teach a lot of social theory classes, and so I get a lot of students who are citing a guy named Durkheim. And Durkheim was writing in the 18-somethings. I can't remember exactly when, late 1800s, early 1900s. And Durkheim's way of writing was they would outline the problem in the first third of their article, and then they would spend the next third or so talking about what other people have said. And then the last part of their paper would be, and here's why all those other people are wrong, and here's what's actually going on. So I would look at this and say, okay, if this is a 30-page article and they're citing from page 12 and saying Durkheim said this, I know that's not what Durkheim said. Durkheim is actually saying someone else said this, and this is going to be refuted. Make sure that what you are quoting from an author is what that author said, not them refuting someone else's work. Because that can be really embarrassing when you get called into the office to say, you realize that Durkheim was refuting Smith here, right? That he was saying Smith's ideas are junk, right? He's not supporting this idea at all. 
Oh, okay. You got to make sure that you don't accidentally use your evidence for things that they're not saying. So the last issue here with citation is cherry picking. Make sure that you are not just searching for the juicy quote that without context would mean something totally different than your source's author meant by it. If you're doing this and you're aware you're doing it, it's dishonest at best and it's unethical at worst. Like, for example, there was a fellow who wrote a paper that um, showed that there were some issues uh, that same-sex couples faced with raising children, mainly because of economic issues. Someone else grabbed that and quoted it out of context to say, see, same-sex couples can't raise children. That is not what he said. And he went on record with several different newspapers saying, these people have misused my work because they were cherry picking. They were looking for a juicy quote that they could take out of context and say that he actually meant the opposite of what his research said. This is kind of a conclusion. This is kind of a special case of conclusions that don't fit the evidence. Don't cherry pick. It's not cool. Now we get to writing style issues. The first big one is overpersonalization. There are three big reasons to avoid overpersonalization or making your paper a story about a problem you or a friend or a family member or a coworker had. One, it's much too easy to take critique on these kinds of papers personally. When you've poured your heart about a personal topic, critique is much harder to manage because you feel like a critique about the writing is a critique about the validity of your experiences, and that's not the case. Second, Disclosing personal information about yourself or others can be dangerous, not to mention unethical. Oh, for example. I, I once had a student write all about the crimes that his buddy had gotten away with. And he included the buddy's name and the buddy's hometown. Do not put your teacher in that position. Do not do that. Okay? Just don't. Third, the reader will not only be bored, but... Your reader is going to get really annoyed if you keep going on and on about yourself. It's like listening to that boring, self-centered person at the party you can't seem to get away from. The paper should be about the topic, not your personal experience. Make sure your paper is about a general topic you care about rather than a specific personal experience you've had. You're less likely to alienate your reader by seeming self-centered. You're less likely to violate someone else's confidences. And you're more likely to tolerate critique when you need to get it. This is also a good reason to avoid interviewing someone for your paper unless you're specifically told to do so in the description of the assignment. Generally, the word I as the subject of any sentence should not appear in an academic paper. And we hear a lot of students thinking, we can't say I believe or I think. We know you believe or you think this because you're writing this paper. Your job isn't to tell us that you believe or that you think. It's to convince us why your belief is the right one. And the way you do that is by showing us the problem and showing us evidence that justify your conclusions. The next problem is one that I have variously over my career as a teacher labeled sound and fury, a la Shakespeare, $12 word syndrome, and highfalutin language. And this is really an issue of writing style differences across different academic disciplines. Most college students are first learning how to write at the college level from teachers in the humanities, English comp, for example. And that means the goal of the writing in those classes is effective use of language to spark emotions and feelings in the reader. So the style of the writing is going to reflect that goal. In a humanities style, there will be lots of vocabulary, 
complicated sentences, lots of description, and demonstrations that the writer knows how to use language effectively for a humanities-focused goal. But when you're writing research, or for any science class, the goal is not to write beautifully with lots of vocabulary or to spark the reader's emotions, it's to write clearly and get the point across. And that kind of goal calls for a much more terse, straightforward, and non-fancy writing style. And this is a problem that is especially difficult for students who have been taught English comp by a literature teacher, because they've been told that college-level writing should be complex, complicated, and confusing, because in most literature, that's what writing looks like. A classic example is 19th century literature like the work of Charles Dickens. But what's left out is the reason that 19th century literature reads the way it does. Many of its writers were writing serial novels. They were published in magazines at a chapter per month for a penny a word, which was a decent amount of money at the time. And this is why they are so often filled with sentences and phrases that are long and meandering and pointless and with big long words that look like they cost 12 bucks where most people's regular words might cost five cents. There's even a contest based on an opening line from a Victorian era novel that is the perfect example of why you should not write your research papers this way. It's called the Bulwer-Lytton Fiction Contest. And here's the example opening line from that contest. It's a classic example of this kind of writing. It was a dark and stormy night. The rain fell in torrents, except at occasional intervals, when it was checked by a violent gust of wind which swept up the streets, for it is in London that our scene lies, rattling along the housetops and fiercely agitating the scanty flame of the lamps that struggled against the darkness. This was written by a contemporary of Dickens, Edward George Bulwer-Lytton. His book was called Paul Clifford, and it was published in 1830. Now, in Shakespearean terms, this kind of writing is sound and fury signifying nothing, which is from Macbeth, Act 5, Scene 5. But given examples like this, and they are legion in English literature classes, a lot of students and a lot of teachers still think that in order to communicate an idea, you have to sound smart and use lots of big words and lots of long, flowery, and descriptive phrases. And I'll tell you this, those long, flowery, descriptive phrases are really hard to read. Another reason behind this style of writing is many social science and science papers were written the same way. Early social science papers written in the same time period and with similarly wordy writing styles are often assigned as reading in social science courses. Reading the classical scholars makes us think we have to write like them in order to be taken seriously. But you don't. You have to be clear, concise, and complete. You've effectively got to write the opposite way of a lot of the people you're reading. The style requirements for a science-focused paper, including social sciences, are very different from the style requirements for a paper written for a humanities discipline. Remember, you're not writing this paper to impress people with your vocabulary. You're writing this paper to get your point across to your chosen audience. You don't need to put a tuxedo on your work to make it acceptable. All these flowery phrases will give your reader hay fever. They're going to get annoyed, they're going to put your paper away. Go through your research paper and eliminate the $12 words unless they are necessary jargon. If they are, you need to define them in simple language the first time you use them and at least once afterwards. Boil down the big, long descriptive phrases so your point isn't buried in complicated grammar structures. Before you turn in a research paper, always read each sentence and ask yourself two things. One, can I say this more simply or with fewer words? If the answer is yes, rewrite the sentence. 
to, have I already said what this sentence is trying to say in another sentence in this paragraph? The answer is yes. Pick which sentence is better and delete the one that isn't. Another way to spot highfalutin language is to let a 14-year-old read your paper, as most people have about that level of reading skill. If they don't understand it, edit it until they do. Now, one that my students brought my attention to was cliches and generalizations. If you find yourself using phrases like everybody knows, or it's always been this way, or it's never been that way, you're generalizing. And generalizations are a way of saying, I don't want to do the research, so I'll just assume you know what the evidence is for this point I'm trying to make. If you find yourself writing things like thinking outside the box, he drank the Kool-Aid or the pot calling the kettle black, you're using cliches to fill up space or as shorthand for what you really want to say. And neither of these is appropriate in an academic paper. Both of them will make the reader think the writer is lazy. So check every statement you make for a never, always, or everybody knows outlook and get rid of it or find the evidence for it. Look online for lists of cliches and make sure your paper does not have them. If you find one, reword it so you're saying what it means. This is one place where we recommend expanding what you say instead of conserving what you say, because you need to say it clearly and without offending people. For example, saying the pot calling the kettle black, what that really means is that person one is accusing person two of having negative traits that person one has. So say it that way. Saying he drank the Kool-Aid, that's actually a pretty offensive way of saying that someone's following a leader without any critical thought about what the leader is telling him to do. And it's offensive because it's a reference to the Jonestown mass suicide of 1978, where over 900 people drank poisoned flavor aid, which is a Kool-Aid knockoff, at the command of cult leader Jim Jones. Thinking outside the box, that means finding unconventional or new ways to accomplish a task. So in all cases of cliché, try to say what the cliché actually means instead of using it as a shortcut. Darlings. Stephen King cautions against doing this. He tells writers to be ready to, quote, murder their darlings. We've all written a paragraph that thrills us with its eloquence and depth, its perfectly placed commas, or its incisive prose. That paragraph is good enough to get the Pulitzer. Great. But if it's not related to your central topic, it doesn't belong in the paper. It's a darling. So copy it to another document and get rid of it. Don't talk down to your reader either. And this shows up when you start a paper or when you put rhetorical questions in your paper like, did you know that? Or are you aware of that? No, of course the reader is not aware of these things or they wouldn't be reading your paper. Don't talk down to your reader. It makes them feel stupid and they will put your paper in the round file. Eliminate or reword any sentence where you find yourself saying you to the reader. Don't ever address your reader directly because it comes across as condescending and talking down. Captain Obvious. Avoid cliche like preachments like humans all make mistakes. Sometimes it can't be avoided. This is true on its face, but it really doesn't add anything to your paper and it just makes you look lazy. If you can say thanks, Captain Obvious, after a statement like this, it doesn't need to be in the paper. And finally, value judgments. Be careful about making comments that disparage an entire group or an entire idea without good evidence for those comments. Saying the justice system is full of corruption, great, but you'd better have evidence for that, and it better not just be your opinion. So these are all issues that can help you turn your first draft into your final draft by finding them and fixing them and removing them and editing them. 
the, the process of getting to the final draft is mainly a process of editing. So you write everything in your first draft, like we talked about in episode 103, and then you go through that first draft and you comb through it for all these different problems that we've talked about. And when you're done combing and you're done editing, you should have a fairly good paper. So after you've done all those things, when you've combed through your paper, you've reorganized everything using an outline, you've gone through and proofread, and you found all your highfalutin words, and you've gotten rid of the $12 word syndrome, you've made sure that it's not about you, you've made sure that you're not talking down to your reader, and all those other issues that Denor and I just finished discussing, then the last thing you need to do before you turn it in is wait. Leave it sit for 72 hours. Ideally, have someone else read that draft. Have them point out any other problems that they notice that you still missed. Then fix them. And then once you've corrected those problems, let it sit for a few days. Don't look at it. Don't think about it. And then come back and go over it again with the same eye for catching mistakes as you did when you first went through it, when you first edited it, when you first went through and found all the proofreading mistakes. By the time you rewrite it the last time, you're probably just going to be like, polishing off edges and saying, okay, I don't need those two words, or that needs to be a period, not a comma, or, you know, little changes, little fixes, you're doing the polishing. And once you've done that, by the time you've rewritten your third draft, most of those mistakes should be corrected, and you should be ready to turn it in. So normally we talk about how teachers and students can use this, but really this was mainly focused at students. Teachers, if you want access to these workshops that I've been talking about, feel free to drop me an email, adam at undergradeasier.com. I'll be more than happy to send them along. And that's what we have for you in episode 104. If you're finding this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends. We're always hoping to get new subscribers so we can help more people. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Android. We're hosted on Blueberry.com. And we'd really appreciate it if you could write us a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to join us next week for episode 105, when we'll talk about sleep and why it matters so much for learning. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learningmadeeasier. And we look forward to seeing you next week.